Good morning. I'd like to welcome you all to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing our praises to God together. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. Lord, you are good and your mercy endureth forever. People from every nation and tongue, from generation to generation.
Christ, oh. 
Thank you for the resurrection power that you have given to us in Christ. We pray that you'd help us to live as resurrection people in your grace. And may our worship reflect you in our lives and in this place. Be honored and glorified in our worship today. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Kind of thought maybe with the uh, all the flu stuff going around that it might be a good idea to not intentionally uh, shake hands, mix up with each other. If you want to do that on your own, it's your risk you want to take. But we won't contribute to that. But we're glad that you're here this morning and and uh, pray that uh, as we come together, we will sense God's spirit at work in our worship in our lives. Uh, you may have noticed over the course of the last few months, we've been uh, doing a ministry spot most of the weeks, uh, most of the Sundays uh, each month. And they've been a variety of things. But one of the things we really want to do and are uh, looking to do is to also give opportunity for people to share a word of testimony about God in their life. And so I've asked Tim Nichols if he would share uh, just a little bit this morning about uh, God in his life, particularly in uh, recent days. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate that. Um, I, uh, I I don't know. To, you know, probably in varying degrees, you might have some awareness of my situation. Um, I thought I'd tell just a little bit about my story. Um, the uh, uh, last fall, back when I thought I was in about as good a shape as any fifty or thirty something uh, would be. <laughs> Um, I started having just a few minor chest pains, uh, went to the ER, they couldn't find anything wrong. 
Um, and, uh, uh, and, but then as a, as a routine follow-up to that incident, a sharp technician down at Jones found that I had a mitral valve uh, issue, uh, uh, which, uh, and in fact, they were concerned enough about it, they packed me into an ambulance and sent me to Strong. Um, and uh, up there I had a, a catheterization which uh, revealed that I had a severe, uh, life-threatening mitral valve prolapse and, uh, and recommended that I have immediate surgery. Uh, when I had left for the academy that morning, I didn't even know what a mitral valve was or that I had one or that you could have a problem with one. Um, and, uh, and so it was, it was really quite a day. I, after talking it over with Olga and the kids, we ended up deciding that I'd be better off having the surgery down in Virginia where they could take care of me. Um, and so that night after I got back from Strong, uh, and while Olga and Samantha were driving up from Virginia, I was trying to pack. I was trying to map out some possible plan for a sub that was going to have to finish the whole semester for me and, uh, and trying unsuccessfully to avoid any kind of exertion or stress, which they told me to do. Uh, I wondered around my house that night, wondering if I was actually going to make it back. Um, the next day, we drove 12 hours down to Virginia, went straight to the emergency room. Uh, they admitted me to begin a 20-day hospital stay. Um, uh, I had surgery on November 20th, and as you may have noticed, I did live. Um, I uh, was able to have a nationally renowned surgeon down there and great care from the hospital staff and from Olga. My recovery my recovery has been faster and smoother than the doctors anticipated. And uh, seven weeks after surgery, I was able to return uh, to teaching at the academy. And being back at church and back with all of you and back with my students, I find myself wondering, did, did that really even happen? Did I fall into the twilight zone or something? Uh, but indeed, it, it really did, and I've got a, a seven-inch scar up my chest to remember it by, which I'll spare you from showing it to you this morning. Um, I had a, just a couple of precious memories uh, from this kind of harrowing adventure, and forgive me in advance if I get choked up. I find that I'm more emotional these days even than I used to be. Um, that first day up at Strong, before I even realized that anyone in town knew what was going on, my cell phone rang, and it was, and it was Pastor Wes said, I heard, what's going on? Can I pray with you? And Wes had done that three years ago when I had cancer, and he had done it nine years ago when I lost my job. And so I want to thank you, and I'm grateful for you, and I'm grateful for your grapevine, <laughs> your very effective grapevine. <clears throat> on that morning, as I was being taken down to surgery, uh, my, my colleagues and students at the academy all gathered in the commons to pray for me just as my surgery began. And uh, Janice later sent me a picture of it, which meant a great deal to me. Um, on a year that I thought that the Grinch had stopped Christmas from coming somehow, I, when Olga and I got back from Virginia, we weren't even sure if we'd get back in time for Christmas, I found that my kids had come in early and had decorated the whole house inside and out. Um, and in fact, the, you know, uh, the decorations never looked more beautiful to me, and Christmas had never seemed sweeter. Um, throughout this whole ordeal, I felt blanketed in love and prayer and support by, by family and friends and from all of you here at the church. Um, on that night when I was waiting to leave Virginia and then later lying in the hospital bed, 
I found myself wondering about all of this and, uh, you know, having had cancer in, in 94 and in 15 and open heart surgery this year, I was trying to figure out, was God trying to tell me something? And if so, what was it? Because I certainly didn't want a fourth lesson. Um, and when I, when I had that false alarm back in September, it was an annoying nuisance. I missed my mom's 85th birthday celebration. I missed work for a few days. Had a big hospital bill, an ambulance bill for both Cuba and Olean. And ironically, this week, my cardiologist told me that those pains were entirely unrelated to, to this heart, to my mitral valve. It was because my, my uh, arteries are completely clear, the catheterization. But uh, the astonishing, what an astonishing thing that it happened. Uh, uh, if it hadn't, my mitral valve would never have probably been caught. And as one of the doctors told us later, if they'd not found it when they did, it would likely have been a life-ending event. Life-ending event. Um, so this is all still quite recent. As I try to sort it out for myself, I've had a couple preliminary thoughts I wanted to share with you before I finish. What are we to, I, I, I find myself thinking about what are we to make of life's annoyances and problems like my inconvenient chest pains last September. I think it's easy to quick to look to see God and the good things that happen, and we talk about being blessed by this good fortune and that good fortune. But it's much harder to see and accept and appreciate them when they come in the form of aggravations and, uh, and uh, misfortune. Um, so often in life, I've needed to go back and remind myself about what Betsy Ten Boom said to Corey when they were at Raven's Book, telling her that they should thank God for the fleas. Um, and looking back over the years of my life, I realized how often God has spoken to me in good times and, and bad, and more often in a still small voice than in a roar. And that sometimes that which I saw as, as bad, God had used for good. I was interested, uh, Olga and I talked about this on the phone the other day, that even our strange long-distance marriage thing, that which we have going on right now because of her work situation and so forth and finances, um, it served to land me in one of the best heart hospitals in the whole nation. Um, and I, uh, I am resolving to try to look for God in both the good and the bad. Um, I found myself thinking afterwards uh, about that, that that student up at the academy that might be the one that, you know, is hardest to love might be the very one that God needs me to love and that God's going to use to teach me something, even as I try to teach that student something. Um, during the week that I had to anticipate surgery and wonder if I would would live all, all, all um, uh, or, or uh, whether I would live or die, um, was a lesson in priorities and evaluating my life. Almost everything that seemed enormously important to me on the morning of November 7th uh, did not seem very important at all that night um, as I lay in the uh, uh, bed waiting to have my chest cracked open. Instead of worrying about grading papers and paying bills and Christmas shopping and getting the car inspected, which, by the way, I never did, um, uh, I found myself wondering if my life had mattered and, and what legacy would I leave to my children and, and my students. And did my students know that I loved them or did they think I only loved homework and history? Um, had I fulfilled the purposes that God had set for me in this world? God used so many people to minister to me throughout this whole ordeal, certainly Olga and, and Kathy and Suzanne and the Smithleys and others, um, uh, total strangers down in Virginia, one of whom kept uh, Tilly for me for five weeks. I didn't even know her. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the, some anonymous person came and mowed my lawn while I was gone. I still don't know who that was. Um, 
And, uh, and, and all of these people were Christ to me. Um, and I found myself now wondering, who does God need for me to be Christ to? How, who do, how can I be a vessel of his love to others? And, and will I listen and hear when he calls me to that privilege? So I feel incredibly fortunate that I got not only a second, but a third and a fourth chance. Uh, and I want to be sure and get it right this time. I don't know what lies ahead for me next, even any more than I did on the morning of November 7th. Um, when I returned to school, um, I found this on the wall of my classroom. This, was, this is the Academy verse for January. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. So every day I look at this big red heart on the wall of, uh, of my room, and I remember just to trust. And so thank you for giving me a little time to share with you today. I'd like to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings. Peace, bring it all to peace. The storm surrounding let it break at your name still call the seas to still the rage in me to still every wave at your name Jesus Jesus you make the darkness tremble Jesus Silence here, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus, we call these bones to live, call these lungs to sing once again, I will pray.
You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Jesus. You silence fear, Jesus, Jesus. You make the darkness tremble, Jesus, Father, we thank you for what you do for us in Jesus. That in the world of darkness, evil, and sin, you're in control. And Jesus makes the evil one and the darkness tremble. Thank you. We thank you for what Jesus does in our lives. This morning we come and And acknowledge our need for you. We pray that you will help us as we struggle with habits and sins that seem to overwhelm us. As we struggle with relationships. As we struggle to trust you. As we struggle to see you at work in our lives. May we see and sense and know that you are present. And we can count on you. We pray, Father, for the needs of the world close by us and far away from us. We pray for people who are grieving and hurting, people who are in need of healing, people who are in need of your strength in the midst of great difficulties, and we ask that you will bring your healing, gracious mercy and presence into each each heart, each home, each place of work, each relationship, in this church. Father, we, we pray for, for the world outside of us, around us. We think, Father, of, of churches who are serving you in this area. And we think of, pray for the First Baptist Church in Hume and Pastor Stroud. May your grace and mercy rest upon them and, and give them power and strength as they serve you. We pray, Father, for our nation. We pray for the leaders of our nation. In this tumultuous time, we pray that you will lead and guide in the way that is best. We pray, Father, for the wider world. We ask, Father, that that you will continue to work in your church around the world. We think of our brothers and sisters in Saudi Arabia. Very difficult country to be a Christian. We pray, Father, that that as we see political and social changes emerging, we ask that there would be more religious freedom and more courage for Christians, that they may live their faith and be an influence in the nation that they love. Father, we thank you for the opportunity you've given us to to be a part of helping the children in our county and the counties around us through Royal Family. We pray, Father, that you would bless the leaders of Royal Family Kids Camp and and all who are preparing and planning for the camp this summer. We pray that you will will lay on our hearts uh, a desire to, to be involved and to serve and to be a means of loving children who desperately need that. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for your love and grace in each of our lives. Continue to be glorified as we continue to worship you through the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
in whose name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us as we read the gospel together. Reading from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. This is the word of the Lord. Children are dismissed to junior church and children's church at this time.
Please be seated. God created us to be whole. God created us to flourish. One of the things I love about reading the book of Genesis is that you see this image of God's purposes from the very beginning. And that is to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with all the goodness of God. And that's why we're created in the image of God. God creates out of his goodness. God creates in order to, to make us flourish and to make this world and everyone in it whole. But our sin has marred God's intent. And so we live not in a world that's whole. We live in a world that's broken. A world that, where we have skewed views of God. A world where we have skewed views of each other. A world in which we struggle with brokenness and pain and, and all of the, the difficulties that we all experience in our lives. And the question that, that is in my mind often is, is, what is God's intent now? Now that we have marred things, now that we've skewed things and we live in this way, does God want more for us than what we experience? And I think one of the things we find in the scriptures is that he does. When we read the Gospels and we see all of the accounts of Jesus healing people, of Jesus casting out demons, of Jesus restoring relationships, of Jesus setting people free, all of those things that Jesus does are, are glimpses of God's eternal purposes for his people. And the day is coming when God will usher in the kingdom in all of its fullness and we will experience all of that in all of its fullness. And all of those healings, all of those works of God are intended to help us see that God has more for us than we typically imagine. There are unique things about every one of the healing stories. And there are unique things about this story that we've read this morning. Probably the, the, the most unique thing about the story is that it takes Jesus two times laying his hands on the man, man's eyes for him to be healed completely. It seems like an odd thing. It doesn't, the text doesn't explain it to us. It just tells us that that's what happens. And it makes me wonder if this isn't a story that is intended to tell us something about our willingness to settle about life. I mean, so often we, we just simply say, well, life, this is good enough. This is, we, I see well enough. I, I love enough. And all the while, God is saying, but I have so much more for you. I, I, want, I want you to see more clearly. I want you, I want you to, to understand me in deeper ways. I want to do more in your life. And so often, we are willing to settle. When I, when I was thinking about this passage and about seeing, it made me think about what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. In chapter 3, verse 18, he says to them, I advise you to buy gold from me, 
by it that's been purified by fire. Then you'll be rich by white garments for me, so you'll not be shamed by your nakedness. And buy ointment for your eyes, so that you'll be able to see. The interesting thing is, Laodicea's problem is that they're lukewarm. They're apathetic. They have settled. They have decided that they don't really want more of God. They don't want less of God, but they don't want more of God. We'll just settle right here. And God says to them, it's not enough. You need more. I've got so much more for you. It's awesome that you can see. And God does that to us and we can see, but it's not enough. And Jesus, the heart of this story is the question that Jesus asks this man After he lays his hands on him and he can see, he says to them, can you see anything now? And underneath that is not just the question, can you see anything now? But do you want to see better? Do you want to see more clearly? See, to see more clearly is something that that we often miss because we don't realize what we're missing. I, I remember when... When people started talking about HD television, I'm thinking, how much different can it be? You know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't need that. I'm fine with what we have. And, and then I watched a golf match on HD television. I said, okay, I'm not, I can't go back. This is just too good. I've never seen such green grass in my whole life. This is amazing. And here's the interesting thing. When you watch HD after a while now, I cannot watch analog television anymore. It hurts my eyes. You know, you have a few channels that are not HD. And it's like, man, I can't even look at that. It it gives me a headache. I can't see it. And I suspect, and I know, I just saw today that there's 4K television. And now I saw something about 8K television. I don't even know what that means. But I suspect there's going to continue to go. And at some point down the road, people are going to look back and say, I can't watch HD TV. It just gives me a headache to watch that. But you know, until we have a glimpse of what it can be, we think that what we, where we are and what we can see is good enough. And God keeps saying to us, it's awesome what you've got, but I got so much more. I want you to see so much more clearly. To see clearly is to see God more clearly. To see God at work in our world, to see God's kingdom happening in our world. It's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to, to, to read about what God is doing in the world and to hear things. Just the little snippet testimony that Tim gave us this morning about God in his life. And, and we, we miss it because we, we are willing to settle. I, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is 2 Kings chapter 6. And it's a story of Elisha and his servant And the king of Aram is irritated with Elisha. And so he sends his whole army and he surrounds Elisha's house in the night. And when the servant goes out in the morning, he looks up and he just sees soldiers and horses and chariots everywhere. And he comes running back into the house. He says, Elisha, let me tell you what's happening. We're in big trouble. And Elisha says to him, the the army of God is greater than the army you can see. And I can almost see his picture servant looking out the window going, "Um, Really? I don't see any army of God out there. And Elisha says, that's the point. And he prays, oh Lord, open his eyes. And when his eyes are opened, he sees what Elisha can see. He sees the army, the chariots of God 
surrounding that Aram army. We miss that if we're just willing to settle. And sometimes we say, boy, God's not doing anything in the world. I wish, I wish we could see God doing things. The truth is God's doing all kinds of things. We're just missing it because our eyes aren't looking for it. Because we, we have, we don't, we're willing to settle. Now understand, to settle sometimes is more comfortable. Because quite frankly, when, when God does his work in our lives, it's often messy, it's often disruptive. And that's difficult for us. One of the parts of the story that intrigues me is the fact that Jesus spits on the guy's eyes. I mean, you saw that, right? I mean, I don't see any other thing in Scripture where Jesus does that. He spits on the ground, he spits on his hands, but this time he spits right in the guy's eye. I think I would be saying there's, there's, there's not a no spitting option here to this healing. Does that really have to be the case? And when he asked him, so can you see anything now? I'd be thinking, that depends. Is there going to be more spitting involved? Because I don't know. I think maybe this is good enough, right? I'm okay here. Actually, I read that, that spitting on people's eyes was, was common in that culture as a means of healing. I'm thinking, that's a weird way of healing. But, but you know, for us, we're looking at that and we're thinking, man, I don't know if I want that. I'm not sure that, that, that it's worth it. It's just too messy. But the deeper thing is that, that we, when God works in our lives, he often shakes us. He often disrupts us. Now, right before this story in 2 Kings 6, is a story in 2 Kings 5 about Naaman. One of the stories, if you went to Sunday school, you learned that story. Naaman's an officer in the, in the army of Aram. And he hears that Elisha might be able to heal him of leprosy. And so he goes and he, he wants to lie, he knocks on his door and, and Elisha sends his servant and tells him, go wash in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman's offended. First of all, because Elisha didn't have enough respect for him as an officer to come talk to him himself. He just sends his servant and then to go wash in the Jordan River that's not exactly a pristine body of water. And he's like, fine, I'm just going to go home. And his servant says, what are you doing? He says, well, I, don't, I don't want to do this. So isn't it worth it? Isn't a little bit of, of mud in the Jordan River worth it? And so he goes and he's healed. We see in John 5 the story of, of uh, the man who's been, who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And, and Jesus comes to him and says, says, you know, do you want to be healed? What a question. There's only one answer to that question, right? And yet, what's the, the man says not to Jesus, of course. He says, well, he starts making excuses why he's not. There is a certain element of, of his life is probably, I mean, for being paralyzed, people take care of him. And to be healed is, means he has to take responsibility for his life. And there, God is, is continually shaking us up to get us to see better. Eye surgery is painful. It hurts. It's difficult. There's a healing process. I think sometimes we we are hesitant to see clearly because when we see clearly, we not only see God, we see everything. We see all of it. We see pain. We see difficulties. We see struggles. I mean, when your eyes are opened... It's awesome. You get to see sunrises and sunsets and rainbows, but you also see mud and trash. 
It's either you see clearly or you don't. And sometimes that's hard for us because we want to avoid the pain of the world. We want to walk away from it. We want to act like it's not there. And there's something in us that says, I, part of me would rather not see so clearly if I can avoid seeing the pain and the agony and the ugliness of our world. It also sees, means that we're going to see people more clearly. What it really means is we're going to see people as human beings, not as objects. Isn't it fascinating that after the first touch of Jesus, he asks him, can you see anything? And the guy says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. They look like objects. When we are willing to settle, people tend to become objects. Because we don't see them the way Jesus does. We don't see them in their brokenness and their hurt and the pain that they are dealing with. We just see them as people who we disagree with or people who lash out at us or hurt us or drive us crazy or we, or we have totally different opinions about. We can't see underneath all of that stuff to what's causing them to do what they do. When our eyes are opened and we begin to see more clearly, we see people for who they are. We begin to understand that people lash out because they're hurt. We begin to see that that people who have different theological opinions than us are not the enemy. They just see things differently. People have different political opinions from us. They're not the enemy. They just see things differently. It doesn't mean that that we necessarily have to agree, but we see them not as the enemy to defeat, but as people to love, as people to care about, to feel their hurts and their brokenness and their pain, just as Jesus does. You know, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus says that Jesus looked on the crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. These people who who are continually bombarding him with questions and needs and and wanting him to do all these things for for them. Jesus understands that they're shepherdless. They don't know what to do. They're lost, they're hurting, they're broken. And he has compassion on them. A few hours later, the disciples look on the same crowd that's now hungry from a day of listening to Jesus. And they say to Jesus, send them away. Because they can't see them the way Jesus does. They're just, there's something that, that, that the disciples are going to have to figure out a problem the disciples have to solve instead of hungry people that need to be fed. And seeing more clearly opens our eyes to see people as human beings, not as objects. It's one of the ongoing discussions that Jesus has with the religious leaders. They see people as objects to use. To trick Jesus, to, to make their point, to, to, to get out of their way. And so they 
bring the woman caught in adultery before Jesus. They don't care a thing about her shame. They don't care a thing about her circumstances. They don't care a thing about embarrassing her. They just want to use her to try to get at Jesus. And you see this over and over again. And Jesus refuses to do that because he sees people in their humanness and their brokenness and their value and their worth. I've been introduced over the last month or so to to a Christian band called Pedro the Lion. Some of you may be familiar with this group. I I was not familiar with them. I'm not sure they're even still together. But uh, someone sent me a couple of their songs, and and, and I kind of like their music. But one of them really grabbed me, particularly thinking about today, a song called Big Trucks. And and it's a song that talks about this this boy says to his dad, 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 why are you going to let that guy get away with that? You need to smash him. You need to crush him. You need to fight back. You need to teach him who's boss. You need to show some force. And the father says, oh, son, you're young. You you, you don't understand things. And then he says, those big trucks that you get so mad at on the highway, they're doing the best that they can. They're driving as fast as they can. There are real people in those trucks. And the son says, I don't understand. What's the point? What is that? What's the, what's the point? What's the connection between needing to put this person in their place and these big trucks? And he says, the point is that truck is not an object. It's about the driver sitting behind the steering wheel. And you, you want to look at that truck as an object that's in your way and you get angry and you do things, you say things, you honk your horn, you, you yell things at them. Because you think it's just an inanimate object in your way, but it's not. It's a person sitting in the driver's seat doing the best that they can. I think that's profound. Maybe it's just touched me because I'm such an impatient driver. But I think there's something profound about that. About how we, how we view people if our eyes opened. But see, this is not just a personal thing. This is corporate. I find it fascinating that, the, that Mark tells us they come to Bethsaida. Bethsaida in Scripture is known for a couple of things. One, it's the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. So three of the disciples are from this town on the northeast shore of the Lake of Ga- Sea of Galilee. It's also, in, in Luke chapter 10, it's also one of the places that Jesus says, woe to you. And you, always want to, you never want Jesus to say, woe to you. That's always a bad thing. Woe to you, Bethsaida. He says, if, if the things, the miracles have been done in Tyre and Sidon that were done in your, in your city, they would have repented. But you ignore it. This is a city that Jesus says is infamous for their lack of faith. I suspect that's why Jesus, when the blind, the people bring this blind man to him, that he takes him by the hand and leads him outside the city. It seems an odd thing to do. I think it's to get away from the faithless people. And he says to him when he's done, don't go back into the city because you need some time to process this and to build your faith and those people are going to be a detriment to you. And when I read that, it made me think and ask the question, is our church a place that it creates an atmosphere of faith or a place that hinders faith? Are we a place that that leads people to see more clearly or to put blinders on? What kind of atmosphere are we creating to allow Jesus to do things that are way beyond what we might dream or imagine, to open up our eyes, to help us to see things more clearly, and to see people more clearly. Are we creating an atmosphere in which we do that? Because the reality is, 
Clearer vision has a tendency to inspire clearer vision. Someone was telling me last week that, that when they were young, seven, eight years old, and they got their first pair of glasses, it was like the whole world just opened up to them. And they, were, they walked around with their parents going, do you see that? 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 And they're like, yeah, yeah, we see it. We see it. But they hadn't seen it that way before. Things, things were opened up to them. And what's interesting is when people do that, when people begin to see things for the first time like that, it tends to cause us to see things that we had been ignoring. It's one of the reasons why stores have secret shoppers that come in. They come into a store they've never been in before and they just walk around and then they give you an analysis of it. Churches do that too. Because they see things that the rest of the people who are there over and over and over again just ignore. There is something about about clearer vision that inspires clearer vision. And we want to be a place that inspires clear vision. Because we believe that God wants us to live with open eyes to see him and to see each other and to believe for greater things than we typically believe. I don't know about you, but going to the ophthalmologist is kind of a frustrating experience for me. I've had bad vision since I was a child. I think I had glasses when I was in third or fourth grade. And I've had glasses. I've had contacts. You know, I've done all different things through the years. But it's frustrating to me for a couple reasons. One is I hate sitting in front of that thing and trying to decide which is better, one or two. Do you know that feeling? I don't know. They look the same to me. I can't see. What are you doing? You know, three or four. I don't know. And and the whole time I'm thinking about the pressure, my ability to see over the next five years depends on how I answer these questions. I don't know. Give me one in ten. I can tell the difference between those, but one in two. I don't know. You know, and I stand there and I keep going back and forth. Which is it? One or two? One or two? I don't know. But the other thing that's frustrating about it for me is that I have astigmatism. And so when I look at the, you know, they darken the room and they put that chart on the wall... All of the letters have this little glow around them, sort of shadowing kind of glow that, that sort of diffuses the, the, the ability. It's not sharp and crisp. And I want the ophthalmologist to be able to make my vision sharp and crisp. I want to be able to walk out of there and say, I can see perfectly now. All the lines are distinct. All that stuff is gone. I can see everything perfectly And they are doing the best that they can, and that's their goal. But the truth of the matter is, it's not possible. There's always going to be a bit of distortion in my vision. I suspect some of you understand what I'm talking about. When we talk about spiritual vision, we will never see everything perfectly until the day Jesus ushers in the kingdom in all of its fullness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that now we see things imperfectly. But the day is coming. The day is coming when we'll see it. And sometimes we have this mindset in between now and then that, well, if we can't see perfectly, it doesn't matter. But the truth of the matter is, though we may not see perfectly until that day, we can always see more clearly than we do. And that is God's design for us. 
to continually improve our vision. To see him more clearly. To see the world more clearly. To see others more clearly. To have sharper vision. To have our eyes open. To see. And as we see to be people who who live our lives, as Paul says in the next verse in 1 Corinthians 13, who live our lives engaged in faith, hope, and love. And especially love. God doesn't give us clearer vision just to give us clearer vision, but to help us see him and to see him more clearly, to see others more clearly, that we may love them. We may love one another more deeply. Jesus is the great ophthalmologist. And he wants to give us clearer vision. And he's asking us, can you see anything now? But he's also asking us, wouldn't you like to see better? Wouldn't you like to see more clearly? Father, forgive us for the times when we just want to settle. It's too messy, it's too disruptive, it's too painful. Give us a passion, a desire, a yearning for clearer vision. In this, just this few moments of silence, Hear our prayers. Lord, in your grace... Answer our prayers. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you.